Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's a beautiful day in a beautiful place. I'm at the Chicago Botanic Garden in Glenview. We're in the McGinley Pavilion overlooking the Great Basin. It's full of lilies. The big carillion is in the distance. It was clanging during the newscast. And we are here to for a couple of days, and it's going to be fun. Tomorrow we're going to talk about wellness and nature and how we are interacting with nature and, and making ourselves better by being in it. But today we are going to talk about the important business of pollinators. The Chicago Botanic Garden is all over pollinators this summer with their bees and beyond effort. There's an exhibit, there's classes, there's quizzes, there's signs all over the garden, and the goal is to get you involved in helping pollinators. The global decline in pollinators is a threat to the world's, uh, most of the world's crops and flowering plants. We're going to talk about the importance of pollinators, and in particular bees, with Andrea Groover. She is uh, doing her master's thesis in plant biology and conservation, and her thesis is investigating how urban areas affect native bees. She's uh, doing a study of this area in Chicago. Great to meet you, Andrea. Great. Thank you for having me. Uh, I wonder, uh, can you give us an idea about uh, the importance of bees in the pollination universe? Because uh, we were, I was going through the exhibit yesterday, and it seems like there's a lot of things that do pollinating. There's moths and butterflies. In some places, there's lizards and lemurs in Madagascar are pollinating. Yeah. So, but how how central are bees? Yeah, so we estimate that somewhere between 80 and 90% of all flowering plants are pollinated by animals. And bees are usually the most efficient pollinators, so they're doing a majority of that pollination. I think a lot of people get confused about bees. Uh, they're, they're, people always think of raising bees and colonies of bees and people taking their colonies of bees out to the crops. These are honeybees. Explain what a yeah. honeybee is and where they came from. Yeah, so a lot of people actually don't know that honeybees are not native to the United States and North America. So honeybees were originally brought over in the early 1800s for agricultural means. And so they're not native here, and they're only one species. Um, so beyond honeybees, we actually have over 20,000 native bees in the world and over 500 just in Illinois. And most of the be these bees, unlike honeybees, are ground nesting or living cavities by themselves. So they do not live in colonies like a honeybee would. So we should look at the honeybee as like cattle or pigs or some other industrial animal that people are basically around and keeping because they don't live because they live in colonies and uh, do their job in colonies right yeah honeybees are completely human managed and so they're just like any other um, kind of livestock if you could imagine that and so the other 500 kinds of bees <laughs> that exist within our universe uh, how are they doing so we know a lot less about native bees than we do about honeybees, um, and part of that is because they live alone. But we do know that they are experiencing a lot of similar declines that the honeybees are experiencing, and possibly even worse than the honeybees. Now, your uh, research has been basically to get it, to know more about what's happening with native bees in this area in an urban-suburban environment. Mm -hmm. Explain what you're doing. Yeah, so I'm really interested in looking at native bees in urban areas and how they might be different from bees that we could find in more suburban areas. And so I have some field sites all across Chicago and the Chicago area um, that differ in the level of urban urbanization around them, so concrete or impervious surfaces like 
buildings and then comparing that to more natural areas with more plants and grass. So in the pollinators perspective exhibit here at the Chicago Botanic Garden, there's a square and they've got you on a CTA platform and you found a rusty patch bumblebee there, which is one of the endangered bees, used to be extremely uh, widespread, but now is endangered and you're bumping into it in a really unlikely place. Yeah, we did. We were really, really surprised. Um, We actually found two rusty patches in the Rogers Park neighborhood, um, just hanging out at the side of a train station, just foraging on some wild plants growing there. How how much of that is, is happening in your research? Are you getting surprised pretty regularly? Yeah, I think we've been very surprised throughout my project. Um, a lot of these places that I'm looking at are unmanaged. And so a lot of them are weedy species or just natives that have popped up. And we've been surprised. We've actually found over 70 different species just last summer. Are you seeing... Um a gradation between uh, suburban and urban. Yeah, I know that's part of what you're interested in, is how, how many native bees can there be in, in a dense city? Yeah, so we have seen some differences. And so it looks like in the more urban areas, we do see fewer native species and more exotic species. Um, so such as the honeybee or even other species that have just found their way over. Uh, it, so it is... Is it true that um, we could support uh, bees in an urban environment, lots of native bee species? I think so, yeah. Um, A lot of native bees really need native plants and places to live, and so when you give them those two things, they start popping up. And I think that's why we ended up finding the rusty patch bumblebee in Chicago. How do they pop up? What's, what is the, um, the space that a average native bee lives in? I, I understand it's not that far. They can fly, but they mm-hmm. don't fly 10 miles and, and find, a, find a new native plant they eat. Yeah, so we don't know exactly how far they all go since all species have different flight ranges, but we do know that they like to live very close to the areas where they forage. So they like to stay pretty close. And so if... So somewhere around that L station, those rusty patch bumblebees mm-hmm. have found something they like. Yeah, they have. They have uh, found a place to, to live. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. I'm live here at the Chicago Botanic Garden with Andrea Groover, and she is doing her master's thesis on urban areas and how they affect native bees. Well, uh, let's talk some about where bees these bees like to live. Um, these are bees that do not live in colonies, native bees, so most of them want to live where? Yeah, so all of them usually will be either in the ground or in some sort of cavity, and so that could be rotting wood or it could be um, bee hotels that you could find at the store. They'll use those as well. So uh, the when you go in the ground, <laughs> how do you when you look around, there is not a lot of ground to go into in a urban area. There are lawns. There are some. There are lots of cement. There is mulch everywhere. Human beings seem to put mulch everywhere. Where? How are the bees finding a place to go in the ground? Yeah. So our ground nesters really do need bare ground, and so that's ground that's just not covered by anything. So no mulch, just bare dirt is what they like. And then, and if you see, uh, there's a little hole in the dirt. Uh, you don't know where it came from, odds are that is a native bee. Most likely, yep. Uh, so uh, we've got um, people putting mulch on everything. Mm-hmm. Does that drive you crazy? A little bit. Yeah, it's kind of 
walking around in the city a little bit hard to see mulch everywhere that could be areas that bees could be nesting. I was talking with someone, um, um, an, a naturalist, who said, you know, nowhere in nature do you find six inches of mulch uh, in the forest or in, the, in anywhere. You don't, you, you, you don't, they're never, they're nobody, we are the only beings that seem to want to mulch everything up. Yeah, it seems that way. And, and it's not only bees that are impacted by this. Lots of other insects would like access to the ground. Mm -hmm. That is very true. A lot of insects will use the ground to nest and live. So um, we've got that going for us. We can, if we could fix this um, nesting situation, we would have lots more bees. Mm -hmm. um, another thing that seems to be affecting bees is the chemicals that we use. And there is a class of chemicals <laughs> called neonicotinoids. Can you tell us a little about neonicotinoids and how they are affecting bee populations? Yeah, neonicotinoids became really popular um, in really the 1990s because they are really effective, but they don't really affect vertebrates, so humans or mammals. Um, but the thing about neonicotinoids is that most of the time they're sprayed to seeds and absorbed in all of the parts of the plant. And so that includes the pollen and nectar that bees would be foraging on. And there's been lots of research about neonicotinoids, and the European Union has banned several kinds of neonicotinoids. They have, yeah. And the United States has not. Yes, that is correct. But the research continues to reveal m more damage to bee populations. It's, it's, as more comes in, it just is increasingly bad. Yeah, so we do know that bees are getting exposed because we can find neonicotinoids in honey, um, of honeybees. So we do know that they're, they're getting exposed to it. And there's evidence that they can um, cause immune problems, which makes them more susceptible to diseases, as well as just confusion when foraging and higher mortality. And it lasts a long time in the soil even it's not it even does, it's yeah. not even about uh, the plant itself which mm -hmm. uh, the seeds and it, it's a really um it's a creepy chemical it's uh, there's a lot going on there it is yeah it can be in the ground it can be in the air it can leach into water too so uh, is there somebody who's leading a campaign against this class of chemical to this to get action on it um i think there's a lot of organizations in the united states that are pushing for this but um, there hasn't really been a clear alternative, um, especially for a lot of farmers that they think would be as efficient. Are there efforts to get people to use it less? It would seem that if we're using it on our, um, our plants that come to us at the garden center, we should not do that. Yeah, I think people are pushing for that too. Um, looking at labels when they're buying plants and seeing if they've been exposed to neonicotinoids and trying to avoid putting those in their yards. So um, the solution to um, this is more native plants, I imagine. Yeah, definitely. Um, native plants would be extremely beneficial to all of our pollinators here in Illinois. Uh, explain how bees match up with native plants and certain native plants are their, they're their only pollinator. Uh, there's a whole universe of relationships going on there. There are. Plants are fundamentally fundamentally connected to bees. Um, so in order to reproduce, a lot of them need bees as their pollinators. So um, is that a good idea for ecologically for evolutionary purposes to be a plant and your only 
um, pollinator is a bumblebee because some like closed flowers it can only it's only right. a bumblebee that gets in there and pounds it out. Um, yeah, I mean it could potentially be a problem if we keep seeing declines like this. And some bees are specific to squash plants. They are, yeah. So some are very specialized and rely on only one or two different species. Uh, so the rusty patch bumblebee that we were mentioning before, uh, that seems to have been a more general bee. Yes, it is. And so what what happened, what is going on if you have a, a bee that has, you know, such widespread um, space and it's all over the East Coast and then suddenly 90% of them are gone? Yeah, I mean, it's really hard to say what it what it was um, that affected the rusty patch so extremely, um, but it could just be a combination of a lot of factors, and that's what we've been seeing in these declines, that it's usually not just one thing, but it's all different things in combination with each other. Um, is Do you have kind of a uh, sense now, after you've walked around with your research and seen all these different places when you're going to see bees and when you're not like oh i'm in a you're just walking over space and say oh, i'm in a bee happy place this is this is going to be good there definitely are if you see a lot of things flowering a lot of different colors of things and a variety of different flower shapes i'm pretty certain that i'll be able to find some bees but i also am surprised sometimes as like seeing the rusty patch now um what what's your next step in your research do you have an idea of where where you're going next yeah, so I've wrapped up most of my field work, and so now I'm working on writing my thesis and hopefully getting some publications out in the near future about urban bees. How many people have you had helping you with this? Quite a few. I had a, a small um, team of interns last summer, about four interns helping with field work, and then I've had a lot of support here at the garden from different faculty and students. And when you're doing field work on this, do you have to catch the bumblebees? Uh, you do, yeah, to identify them and figure yeah. out who they are. All right. So does that make you feel bad to catch the bumblebees and, and take them out of their thing? It it does a little bit, but um, we do need to know how many we have and what we have in order to help protect it and conserve the bees. All right. Did you let the rusty patch bumblebees going on the CTA platform? <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> well, congratulations on what you're doing, and keep up the good work in bumble, on, bum, on all sorts of native bees. Thank and you. Hopefully, we'll we'll protect more of these bees and important pollinators so that we can have uh, plants and vegetables in the future. Yeah, I hope so too. Thank you so much. Andrea Groover is a graduate student, and she is uh, in Northwestern University in the Botanic Garden, and she's doing her thesis on um, on bees in in the city. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thank you. up after the break we'll try to get a handle on uh, what is inside a pollinator's head we're talking about pollinators today live from the chicago botanic garden stay with us i'm jerome mcdonald and you're listening to worldview on wbez
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and we're at the Chicago Botanic Garden today and tomorrow. Today we're talking about pollinators. They've got a big bees and beyond exhibit here at the field or at the uh, Botanic Garden, and we're uh, definitely taking in lots about pollinators today. And um, there's stuff all over the Botanic Garden, uh, signs in the in the flowers telling you about bees and pollinators. And we're going to spend some time now trying to get into the head of a pollinator and see the world the way a pollinator sees it. With me is Amy Eiler, a conservation scientist here at the Chicago Botanic Garden. Great to meet you, Amy. Nice to meet you, too. Thank you for having me. Uh, tell us something about how the pollinator sees the world. What do, what do they see when they're flying up to a, a bed of plants? Yeah, well, the first thing they have to see is, at a very broad spatial scale, kind of where am I going to pick to forage? And they might see big patches of color in the landscape. And once they zoom in, they start to see more about flower shape. There's other cues like floral scent that they might cue in on to decide where to land. So... Uh the shape of the flower ends up being pretty important to drawing the specific kind of pollinator. Uh, what what kind of thing is going on there? Yeah, so um, different shapes correspond, broadly speaking, to kind of different pollinators. So a bee might choose to land on a flower that's a bit more open and kind of cup-shaped, and they've got a little landing pad or a petal that they could stand on um, that can support them where they're foraging for nectar. Um, a hummingbird would cue in on something that's maybe more tubular-shaped and deeper, and the nectar is going to be farther down into the flower, and the bird has to be able to stick its beak down in there to get it, for example. yeah. And then there's all the other, another common shape is a a kind of a butterfly or a moth flower that would be have a more narrow tube. They've got really long, skinny tongues, and they've got to be able to get the nectar out of the bottom of that flower. Yeah, if people ever sit down and watch a butterfly at work, it's pretty wild. They they really have big tongues. They're pretty special. You kind of wonder how that long tongue even fits in their little head. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, and is it true that they see colors differently than we do? That is true. And bees can see in the UV, for example, which we can't. And so there's some flowers that have markings on them that we can't see. Um, And and additionally, like, oh, go ahead. They're they're like seeing like a luminescent thing that that, that is screaming neon at them rather than kind of just even a nice looking flower to us. Basically, yeah, that's that's (laughs) almost a good description. And they also colors that we see um, that seem very distinct. The bees might not recognize, for example, that we think, oh, that's a different that's a lighter color purple or a darker. They kind of just see one shade of purple. All right. Yeah. Um, is um, is how you assemble your bed or garden? Does that have an effect on what the bee is going to do when it comes into town? Um, yeah, I think probably so. So bees exhibit a thing called um, flower constancy. So if they're if they're eating and getting nectar from one type of flower, they'll tend to stay on that flower if they can find it. So if you're placing things. Um, certain plants far away from one another, they might have to switch. And in switching, you know, that's fine. They can switch. But they're a little bit less efficient when they have to do that. So, <laughs> so but wait a minute. If, yeah. if you were if you were a, a bee and you were trying to set up your, you know, mm-hmm. uh, eating habits, what would be the best-looking garden to you? Um, one that had big 
blobs of the same kind of <laughs> plant, <laughs> flower, right next to each other. So no, I would know that I could, if I was a bee, I could um, move from one to the next really easily. All right. And, yeah. But so in, in essence, though, you want to mix your plants up in some ways because bees want to feed all year long, you, you've got to have spring bloomers, summer bloomers, fall bloomers. Exactly. And every different kind of bee is going to probably select a different kind of flower. So Andrea, as Andrea mentioned, just in Illinois alone, there's over 500 native bee species. And so you want to be able to, to support all of them, plant a diversity of flowers. So if you are planting a garden, you know, if you can pick native plants, those are probably going to be best and things that flower across the whole season so that bees have food across the whole season. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald, and I'm talking with Amy Eiler, a conservation scientist here at the Chicago Botanic Garden. We're talking a bit about how bees and pollinators see the world. Uh, you do research on climate change and how climate change is affecting pollinators. Um, what do you know? Yeah, so um, a lot of my work is in the Rocky Mountains um, at a place called the Rocky Mountain Biological Lab. And one of the great things about that place is that there's a lot of long-term data about when plants are flowering, um, and there's some long-term data about when the hummingbirds are arriving as well. So just like around here, we have the broad-tailed hummingbird. Um, I'm sorry, the ruby-throated hummingbird. There's one in Colorado called the broad-tailed hummingbird that looks very similar. Um, and we were able to ask if the timing of when the hummingbird is arriving for the summer from its overwintering grounds in Mexico has been changing kind of with pace um, with the flowers or if it's changing at a different pace. So what we're seeing in Colorado where I work is that um, early in the season, the flowers are blooming about five days earlier every 10 years. Um, and so what that means is that the hummingbird would have to be able to keep pace with that. But unfortunately, it's arriving at about the same time. So it's starting to kind of miss that early season food resource base that it had had in the past. Um, and we don't know exactly what that means for the bird, but it has it definitely means that it has less time to complete its reproductive cycle, which probably isn't good for it. So can you see the hummingbirds declining in population? We well, no. The, answer, the brief answer is no, but we haven't really been tracking that for long enough to know for sure. But yeah. you, but that's what you would expect to happen if you can't reproduce. Worst, that is what happens. The bird population. Worst case all over scenario. The place. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. They're still reproducing, but um, we know they're still reproducing and making nests and laying eggs. But it could be that not as many of them are, and we're gonna. Well, yeah. We'll just have to keep studying them to find out. Part of being in Colorado is about the altitude um, that you're in or they're in, mm -hmm. and they go to, and it's a little more of a cute thing going on. Do they, do the plants and the birds start changing altitude where they where they go and get their stuff? That's a great question. Um, we know that the birds do. The first birds that arrive are the male birds. They get up. They get there early to set up breeding territories. And we know that once they choose a site, they come back there year after year. Um, but kind of, so uh, the average life of a hummingbird of this species is about six years. So in the, the next kind of generation, they could perhaps move up. But they're kind of locked in, at least for their lifetime, where they decide to go. Uh, and the same is true for the females. They'll come back to the same nest if they can from one year to the next. All right. Um how how many people are studying this kind of thing now? Is this uh, something that is uh, something that's getting an adequate amount of research? 
I think there's a, yeah, there's a lot of people working on this question. Um, and it, it's something that is kind of easy to understand. Oh, if, you know, if something that needs food isn't getting that food at the right time anymore, and something that needs reproduction from an animal isn't getting that, then it's, you know, that might not be good news for everyone. So there's, there's scientists all over the country and all over the world, actually, studying this question. Uh, are you seeing a decline in other pollinators? Is this something that you're worried about? Uh, I mean, we just talked about the hummingbird, which I imagine is kind of a elite pollinator in some ways. Um, but <laughs> yeah. it is, is, are you seeing the other pollinators have the same problem that the honey, hummingbird does? Um, you know, we kind of find a mixed bag of evidence for the other pollinators. Um, and this is from research all over. For um, There's some bumblebees in Japan that seem to maybe be coming mistimed. And again, it's those really early season ones that come out first in the season and need that, that food right away. Um, the things that come out later in the year, we're finding, um, they can just switch because there's more food available. So they can, maybe they're not eating from their preferred food resource anymore, but they can still have food. All right. Yeah. What are some of the kind of bee species that are the early goers here? Yeah. Um, well, in the mountain here, this is true in Illinois as well. Um, the bumblebees are often out early and you're going to see the queens first. So the queens come out in the spring and they're really big and fuzzy and they're looking for a nest. And what do they get? What do they have to eat in the early spring? Um, around here, I mean, there's a lot of um, spring wildflowers. They're called the spring ephemerals. Um, so there's spring beauty and bluebells. Um, I think there's some some buttercups that are out early that they can also get nectar from. Geraniums, and it's actually the same. It's a similar suite of species in Colorado. To, to, um, so are they, are, I mean, if you had trouble with, for a queen that was foraging in the spring, then, mm-hmm. then that means more trouble. That means a more cascade trouble. of trouble. Yeah, so a bumblebee is kind of like an annual plant in that it has a, a one-year life cycle. So the queens come out, and they have to find a nest. And when they do, then they can start to lay their eggs that they've had over the winter and make worker bees. And the workers are all females, so they're going to be out building the colony, collecting pollen and nectar for the the larvae. And at the end of the year, the males come out. And really the male's only job is to mate with the new queens that are produced at the end of the year. And the whole thing starts over again. Um, So the queens will then overwinter and start the whole process the next year. So you're correct. If If the queen doesn't have enough food, then the colonies are going to be smaller, or they might even fail, worst case scenario. All right, and that's uh, that's for honeybees, basically. That's bumblebees. Bumblebees. Yeah, honeybees can overwinter um, as a whole colony. So for bumblebees, that colony only lasts for one year, um, but for honeybees, um, they can, as long as it's not too cold, um, they can live, the whole colony lives through the winter. Are there um, things about climate change and pollinators that you think people should be talking more about? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I think we could, yeah, I think we could be talking more about setting up some long-term, longer-term population uh, monitoring programs. There is some of that being done, but I think we need to talk a lot more about that because a lot of what we don't know uh, Uh, stems from the fact that we don't have great baselines for all of these species. So for honeybees, we know they're declining because they're a managed species that's really important for agriculture, and we know a lot about their populations. For a lot of these other bees, we don't have that as good of information. And so just simple population monitoring is really important. So uh, this is 
brought a big emphasis on community science. People are, mm -hmm. are definitely doing this, and I've been talking with the people who monitor the butterflies, and they monitor the dragonflies, and this is true of bees and other hardcore pollinators. Yeah. Now, um, there's an effort called Budburst here at the Botanic Garden? That's correct. And what, what are people doing with Budburst? Budburst is a wonderful program. Um, as you mentioned, it's a community science program, so um, volunteers, people that are not formally trained as scientists can go out and collect really important scientific data. And what we're collecting information on is just the timing of when things happen for plants in nature. So when are certain plants getting their leaves in the spring? When are they flowering? When are they dropping their leaves? Information like that. So you can go online um, at, at the Botanic Garden. We have a Budburst website. And um, you can become a participant just by signing up and getting watching a training. And I've been talking with some of the folks who work here who participate mm -hmm. and, and do their own home gardens and yeah. finding out things. They're, they're doing their own science on what plants are getting the most bees on them and when and yeah. whether cultivars matter and how much they matter and what bees are getting out of a cultivar rather than a regular native plant. There's... There's a little universe in your yard. There is. Yeah, it's really fascinating. And, and the response has been really great. We've gotten a lot of people involved who um, are planting these plants in their garden and then watching them to see what's coming and visiting. And uh, you, you probably learn a few things about how to plant for wildlife when you do that. You're, you do. You're, you're definitely... Um figuring things out. Yeah, and what's really wonderful about community science is that this is this data that um, these data that are being collected will be actually be used by scientists to learn more about how nature works. And there's a host of other efforts um, mm -hmm. uh, out there in the universe of community science now on the internet. It's a it's a fantastic thing people are doing it with birds and mm -hmm. um, the whole shebang. Yes, and we even have another program at the garden called um, Plants of Concern, which is a rare plant monitoring program. Well, I hope people get involved and yeah. find out more. And we've been talking with Amy Eiler, conservation scientist here at the Chicago Botanic Garden. She's been taking part in the Bees and Beyond effort here at the Botanic Garden this summer. There's an exhibit. There are butterfly exhibits you can go see. There's all sorts of stuff here at the Botanic Garden that has to do with pollinators. We're talking about pollinators here live at the Botanic Garden today. Coming up after the break, we are going to talk about the capacity of cities to help pollinators stay with us. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. We are live at the Chicago Botanic Garden. We are talking pollinators today. The Botanic Garden has been doing a big summer of pollinators with their bees and beyond exhibits and events that they've had here all summer long. 
And we are going to ponder now uh, about what we can do to help pollinators in the city and um, make the world a little more friendlier for our pollinator friends. And with us is Heather Sherwood, Senior Horticulturist at the Chicago Botanic Garden. Great to meet you. Hi, nice to meet you, too. And Abigail Derby-Lewis, Senior Conservation Ecologist with the Field Museum. Great to see you, Abigail. Great to see you, Jerome. Abigail published a couple of papers earlier this year in The Frontiers in Ecology and Evolution. She was the lead author for Estimating Milkweed Abundance in Metropolitan Areas. And Does Nature Need Cities? Pollinators Reveal a Role for Cities in Wildlife Conservation. Um, you got a lot of attention for these, Abigail. I was very happy to, to see you and read about you in National Geographic, everything else. Um, uh, what, what, were your, what were your ideas here? Why did you want to credit a, You knuckled down and tried to figure out what is the capacity here for uh, an urban area to do good for pollinators. We did, and it was a a really wonderful undertaking that we led with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. As you might know, the monarch is under um, trying to see whether or not it could be listed as threatened or endangered. And so in order to do that assessment, we need to know how much milkweed, the only host plant that the monarch can use, is already on the ground and how much more we can possibly put. So there's a national goal, 1.8 billion stems of milkweed that are needed in order to stabilize that population. Oh, that seems like a lot of milkweed. It's a, it's a billion with a B. It's a lot of milkweed. And so it makes sense to ask, where are you going to put all that milkweed? And the punchline is that all land use types are going to need to play a role. And that includes urban. And for a long time, I think a lot of folks, scientists and lots of other people as well, have kind of written off what cities can do for conservation, for green space, for functional habitat, for lots of different wildlife species. And so we really wanted to know what is there and how much more could there be? And importantly, not just the potential, but how you turn potential into reality. How do you successfully engage people in getting that habitat on the ground? Now, um, what? How, how did you end up coming to a number? Because you did come to some numbers about we milkweed did. and the city, and there's um, <laughs> there's uh, maps from above that you used and went down and zoned in on open spaces and started adding things up to get a number. Yeah, it was really about the collective impact of all of these different land use types and what's already there and what could be there. So what's already on the ground in a place like the greater Chicago region, so that's a seven-county area of Chicago, is over 15 million stems of milkweed. That's a lot of milkweed already there that really hadn't been recognized or acknowledged, which is a great number. It's a big number, but I think the real story is how much more we could put on the ground. And so, again, the seven-county area, has the potential to nearly double that number. And that is through all land use types. That's our churchyards and our schoolyards and our parks and our parkways and our boulevards, our cultural institutions like here at the Botanic Garden and the Field Museum. It's, though, really evident in residential. So that's where the biggest potential is because over 40 million acres in the U.S. is lawn, the single largest irrigated crop, some would say, in our country. And so much of that... um, here in the Chicagoland area is as well. 300,000 acres of this region is in residential lawns. And that's mainly short, shallow-rooted grass that doesn't have a high function for holding water, for storing carbon, and certainly not for wildlife. And so really thinking about how can we connect with people to change just a little bit 
or maybe a lot of what they have into something that's really helpful both for wildlife but also for them. Reducing maintenance costs and reducing water needs, reducing herbicides and fertilizers. All of these things can save you money and be a lot better for your health. I've got a big native garden myself, and I give, it's got a high entertainment value. You just sit out there yeah. and watch the show. It's a show every <laughs> night. And, you know, you see the hummingbird the come, all the, the, all the different kind of pollinators, the moths that you never knew existed, and they're all just walking up to you. Sometimes there's a bat overhead that is whipping by and doing a little business uh, Absolutely. with your stuff. And those bats and dragonflies are so great for reducing mosquito populations. Natural controls, we call them. So those are good to have around. And yeah, exactly. Being able to connect to nature in your backyard is, is a big part of this. I'm talking with Abigail Derby-Lewis, senior conservation ecologist at the Field Museum. We're talking about getting some more uh, beneficial plants into our neighborhoods to help uh, with the pollinators that need it. And with us is Heather Sherwood, a senior horticulturist here at the Botanic Garden. And uh, so what else should we plant? There's milkweed, but there's a universe of stuff that we can we could go at in our own home gardens. Absolutely, and the, definitely the first one are always natives in my mind. Um, and there's some beautiful natives out there that bloom in every single season from the end of March all the way to mums and asters into the freezing fall. So my, my favorite run, one is just coming up. It's the asters and the solidago or the... Solidago, which is goldenrod. Thank you. Um, the goldenrod is great, and it brings that awesome fall color into the garden right now. There is a universe of goldenrod out there, and um, I picked a particularly aggressive form for my yard, <laughs> and I had to dig a little bit of that up. But yeah. so there's you, you gotta you've got to pick. There's other less aggressive forms of goldenrod that are actually better looking. I think. I think uh, so too. Uh, um, I was noticing you've got them in your native garden um well there's one with a big round leaf that is a rounder leaf that is much better looking yeah much better looker looking and it doesn't take over your yard and everything else um and it has a slightly longer bloom period too and so those are native r's or those are plants that we have bred to have some more uh aesthetic qualities to them like not taking over your yard asters (laughs) right now too are just about to explode in chrysanthemums there's bulbs in the springtime that are native like winter aconite that blooms so early and that's so important for all of our bees and butterflies that come out early in the season um other things that are right now like hostas are fabulous for all types of native bugs because their stems you can leave their stems in the ground like it's recommended nowadays not to clean up your yard in the fall because all of that uh, debris that you leave behind, that is habitat for our native populations and native insects to start early in the springtime. So as a horticulturist, if I don't have to clean it up, yay me! <laughs> um, what do you think about no mulch? I was talking earlier in the program about no mulch so that bees have a chance to get in the ground and many other insects and use the ground it turns out Uh, but uh, how do we know mulch so i live in the city and i don't use mulch either i use all of my leaves i take my lawnmower and i mow my leaves and chop them up into little smaller bits and that's what i put on for my winter protection and then all the plant material that i do chop down because i don't want like the bad insects like slugs or something like that overwintering i run that through my mower and i put it right back on the ground where it belongs. So it's mulching in a way that I'm not actually taking anything off. I'm leaving what's there and hopefully making it a little bit prettier and a better habitat for specialized insects that need it. Abigail, you have some thoughts about that kind of thing? 
It's always hotly debated, isn't it? There are some like mulchers out there. And I would say, you know, start with where you're at. If you are a mulch lover and you are just like, gotta have it, it's okay, right? It does help keep water and moisture in. I wouldn't say overdo it, but I was just telling Amy before that I was watching a native bumblebee. I had put some mulch in a newly planted area where I wanted to keep a lot of moisture in, and I came out right after I planted it, and there was like an explosion of mulch all over in a big hole, and I was like, huh chipmunk and I started absentmindedly you know covering it over I came back and I saw a really beautiful bombus species like son of a gun lady knock it off you know just like (laughs) you know careening in there and putting mulch everywhere and digging it I don't think it's a huge barrier I think larger invertebrates that really want to get in there and and uh, dwell in that ground area can do it um it would be great to move to a mulch-free world, but I, I wouldn't say it's the biggest barrier. And if you're really dedicated to that particular aesthetic, it, it's okay, I think. What about um, the the uh, chemical usage here? Yeah. Uh, it, that's uh, what should we do? Don't. <laughs> Yes. I mean, I think one of the best things about native plants is that you don't have to, and you don't have to for anything, but they have a a pretty high tolerance um, for a lot of other insects. And they're meant to be eaten. And so I think being able to think about not growing flowers, but growing habitat, right? So when we see lots of little holes in our leaves, we shouldn't think, oh, we need to spray the crud out of that. We should say, it's working, right? We're actually providing homes for, in the terms of milkweed, over 400 other insects that use this milkweed. And so being able to wean ourselves away, especially on private and public lands, for the use of pesticide is not just good for wildlife, it's incredibly important for our own human health. How, how much has planting milkweed so far helped, uh, helped the monarchs? Be- because there's been a pretty sizable effort to get milkweed populations up so that we can get monarch populations up. And I've seen um, people lecture on monarch populations, and they're like every other insect. There can be some pr- pretty acute ups and downs that you can't mm-hmm. exactly attribute to anything. Um, do, do we know it's working? There is always year-to-year variability for lots of lots of things that happen, and so that's correct. But over the last 20 years, there's been an 80% decline in that population. And so there's really no other way to read that other than it has been going down. And there's a lot of drivers, but habitat loss, both the milkweed and other native nectar sources, has really been the driver of that. In terms of what are we doing and is it working... I think it is. So I was able, it was on my bucket list, to go to the overwintering sites in central Mexico and Michoacan. El Rosario was one of them, which was just a stunning and life-changing experience. When I I went to Michoacan, I was so happy that they they have the monarch on their license plates. (laughs) They do, they do. State of Illinois tried to do that. It didn't quite work yet, but maybe it will. Um, So... The numbers were really good this year, right? So that national goal of 1.8 billion is to get up to six hectares of overwintering population. And we were at six hectares this past January. And so it's not to throw your hands up and say, good, we're done. Okay, moving on. But it is to say that we are in a good place. How can we maintain it? Even though it might drop down a little bit, that year-to-year variability, if we're able to maintain it and grow it, I think we can be in a really good spot. And you know, our work on urban areas says that cities can contribute nearly a third to that national goal. So thinking about that collective impact and how small actions at 
individual sites add up to really big gains for monarchs and other pollinators is really empowering, and people are latching onto it. Um, it doesn't often happen that there's an insect that has such amazing, captivating features for the general public. No yeah. offense to other insects <laughs> or, or to bees. I personally think bumblebees are like flying pandas. They're amazing. They're adorable. Um, but not everybody does, right? But people, by and large, really connect to and are in love with and want to help the monarch. And so being able to use them as an entry point and as a champion to really get this work happening on the ground has been really successful. And I hope that it continues to take flight. Heather, you want to weigh in on that? <laughs> I absolutely agree, 100%. And I think homeowners are... It, Asclepius is one of the easiest plants to grow. It doesn't need that much. And they're beautiful. They come in multitude of colors, and they bloom at different seasons of year. So what's Gorgeous. not to love? Gorgeous, yeah. And you can hatch them. <laughs> like, to get the kids involved and to get people talking about it, bringing a chrysalis home and watching it hatch out is so easy to do. And it's really cool. I have young children, and they're like, Mom, when are they coming? When are they coming? Mm -hmm. And you mm -hmm. just got to find them. My husband cried the first time we released them on. I was like, are you crying? I mean, that's great. I'm great. He's emotionally connected. But, yeah, it touches kids and, sorry, honey, and adults alike. Yeah. Yeah, and you, it's a great talking point. Social media, those pictures on it, it's fabulous. You know, I think there's um, something about we, how long we've been doing this and how long we've known that this is stuff is going on. I mean, even with the monarch, with this amazing story, uh, people didn't know it was going on until, what, the 70s? Yeah, something? yeah. Like, uh, they, we uh, did not know they migrated. We just thought they were. They, we, we just thought yeah. they were flying around. <laughs> uh, <laughs> now, now, you know, we figured a few things out about this kind of megafauna. So, so there's a whole there's whole universes left in the insect world that are doing similar cool things. There are, there are. But I, I do think something so special about the monarch is that migration. I mean, for something of its size, there's, there's a dragonfly that does something similar. They're not totally unique, but. The fact that it can traverse nearly 3,000 miles across three countries, you know, over multiple generations each and every year is truly a natural wonder, and we don't want to lose that. Uh, how would you ask people, if they were getting started right now, what, should, what kind of things should they do? Go and take a walk outside in your national, in your park systems or your local forest preserves. Go outside and find them. They're everywhere right now. Um, and the city and the surrounding counties have so many really good parks to go and visit. Go and volunteer for them. Get your fingers dirty a little bit. It'll help you stay healthier and it'll connect you back to nature, which is every part is good for the human soul. Um, and get your kids involved. Talk about it on social media as well. Um, those pictures with all the butterflies get a lot of likes. And if you have a space, whether it's on your balcony, whether it's pot, pots available, whether it's your front or backyard, being able to just even start small. Just put a couple of stems of milkweed. Fall is a great time for planting. Spring is great. Fall is good, too. We're coming up on it. Go into your big box store, your local nursery, and ask. And if they don't have native plants, if they don't have milkweed, say, please get some. The more we ask, I think the higher the supply will be. And so go in, ask, start small, and then grow from there. You know, I've got a pretty big native garden, and I've got it certified. i got sticks in my lawn Whoa. and everything. And, um, <laughs> and I talk to neighbors about it. And then some neighbors are sympathetic and, and mm. interested, but not many neighbors really want to do. They, they see, don't. They don't seem to want to do something. They don't want to. Um, they want easy maintenance. 
Yeah, I mean, they want I, a carpet. They want like a carpet for their outside. <laughs> I, I do think there's a really interesting cultural construct here about what we consider beautiful and what we consider appropriate and what we consider normalized. And um, Jerome, you're helping to shift that, right? And so all the places where we do it, it does begin to have what we call social momentum and an uptake of it. Having signage, I love that it's certified and you have a sign to tell people, I did this on purpose. And this is why is a really good way to communicate that and to try and spread that. So thank you. Yeah, I'm trying. I, I want it to go faster because <laughs> we need how many milkweed? Um, yeah, a couple billion more. We can, yeah, a we couple can do billion it more. We and the city it. of Chicago can have how many milkweed in it potentially? Well, we can add over 13 million more. Let's do this. Abigail Derby-Lewis is the um, senior uh, conservation ecologist at the Field Museum, and Heather Sherwood is a senior horticulturist here at the Chicago Botanic Garden, and we've been talking about uh, adding some native things and getting the pollinators up to speed here, in particular the monarch butterfly. Thanks for joining us, and thanks for being a part of this uh, fun day at the Chicago Botanic Garden. It was fun. Thanks so much. Come back again. Oh, we're going to come back tomorrow. <laughs> we're going to come back tomorrow and do another show on wellness and stuff. It's going to be fun. Uh, thanks to everybody here at the Chicago Botanic Garden, which is making this extremely easy and pleasurable for us. Aaron Benassi and Julie McCarthy and CEO Jan Francic, uh, thanks for hosting us this week. Tomorrow we will take you on a tour of a collaboration that Garden is doing in, on the farm in Ogden on Chicago's Lawndale neighborhood. We're going to run down there and check out what's going on with Urban Ag. They're doing great things with aquaponics, job training, and produce. So stay tuned for that tomorrow on Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Ashish Valentine for production assistance. Thanks to J. Kyle White Sullivan and Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.